You're listening to Lost and Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. My name's Paul Hanford. I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin, we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now, some already exploring new ways of doing this. In this episode, we're zooming over to California to talk with Tune Yards. Hello, how are you? I hope you're good. It's beautiful here in Berlin today. I'm in Gorlitzer Park by the canal and a big warehouse space called Factory where I'm doing the sort of studio sounding little bits of the podcast. It's a really plush kind of co-working kind of space with lots of funky chairs chairs of all kinds of shapes and sizes chairs that look like gramophones and spaceships from the 1950s and i'm just trying working my way through sitting in different ones um if i was going to do a podcast about sitting in chairs this would be a really good place to start so last night i spoke with meryl garbus aka tune yards um we had a Zoom chat. Um, it was evening for me. Um, she's in California in Oakland, so it was kind of her breakfast time. And it's a bit of a crazy time to speak with her because they've had these, you know, the fires in California are going. And as you've seen on the news, the sky is completely orange there last week. And, you know, obviously I wanted to ask her about this and ask her if she felt safe and this led into a very intense conversation i think i was quite surprised at how willingly and open she was to discuss a lot of things that a lot of people uh feel maybe a little bit uncomfortable about talking about but this isn't surprising really because tunyard's something about her music has always been quite confrontational in a way i think um i first heard her about 10 years ago with her first EP and I'm being really really blown away by the way the rhythms and the harmonies seem to kind of jump out and have their own energy and it had a very lo-fi production to this but it kind of the whole energy of this EP just burst right out and then over the years every couple of years there's a new album and I'm always surprised by how she manages to make Juniards sound exactly like Juniards but always evolving at the same time. She is an artist that's always kind of rewriting her own rule book and being hypercritical of herself. And I think this comes across very much in the interview that you're about to hear. Hello. 
Oh, just a minute. In the excitement of talking about chairs, I forgot to mention Juniards is a project she collaborates on with her long-term creative and life partner, Nate Brenner. And I should warn that this interview does discuss topics that might be triggering. Thank you so, so much for, oh, yeah. um, for being pleasure. up for this. Are you, are you in Oakland? Yeah. yeah. Um, how, how is it there? Because, I mean, obviously we've seen on the news that the skies and all of yeah. this. Today, I don't, you can probably see the, the, at least the sun is shining through the window, so that's an improvement. And, and um, it's been, like, I just went outside to take, you might hear this little dog on my lap. I, I went to take her out, uh, and I, that was the first time I went out without a mask in a while because the, the, we're down to a, a around a hundred of the, you know, air quality index. And it's been two hundreds the past couple of days, especially. So, um, so we'll see. It, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy time. <laughs> yeah. Have you felt safe? From the fires, you mean? Mm. Um, we have our bags packed, you know, I mean, and that was from a couple, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, even that, that they, had issued a warning for our area to be ready to go. So, um, safe, safe. It, I, I actually don't know that that word <laughs> applies anymore. What was I mean, that and word? In fact, <laughs> well, I'm reading, and I'm reading this book about misogyny and, uh, by Kate Mann, this wonderful book. And, um, it just made me think about how it, that, you know, for, I mean, from, she's talking about from a woman's perspective, mm-hmm. um, but especially with the internet, how, how unsafe the internet made women's lives on the internet, you know, that there's, um, anyway, but I was thinking about how that, that, um, maybe that notion, maybe we're just not safe and that like seeking to feel safe all the time or be safe all the time isn't, um, is actually like part of the problem. <laughs> and what if actually just like being prepared is all, you know what I mean? <laughs> so do you feel, do you feel um, like we've been living under a kind of a construct then for, for some period of like maybe for, for yeah. all of time, maybe? Right, right. And, and certainly for, for the decades after, well, the decades probably after World War One, even. Mm. I mean, that, that this, and I don't know, this is just a theory of mine, but just the, seeing seeing the the horrors of what humanity was capable capable of then suddenly and and certainly you know in this country from the end of world war ii onwards um which now we see in the you know making make america great again like this referencing Mm -hmm. to that time which of course was not safe for so many people um but that this notion of safety and and since then um you know the the law and order candidates and all, all this, you know, the rhetoric around safety just has been making me question that, that feeling. But that's all to say from the fires, there's no immediate threat. And thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love a good tangent. And that was very, I think it, I actually had like a weird thought the other day because um, being like white and male and living in the West um, mm-hmm. and everything that's happened this year, I was kind of thinking, when was the last time things were really good? 
And, yeah. and, you know, in my bubble, I was going, well, maybe the 90s to me, you know, growing up felt mm. quite safe. It felt like mm-hmm. there was an optimism in the UK. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, didn't, we even had Tony Blair wasn't even a Shakespearean villain at that point. He was. Right. Um, and then I kind of realized, actually, that's just bullshit because uh, particularly all of the learning I've done this year and sort of relearning or, or you know, yeah. at least the beginnings of that, you know, um, yeah. kind of realized, oh, my God, that was just safe for me. <laughs> for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right right exactly and and that in fact those times were were so very unsafe I mean were the undoing of um of so many people's safety which I didn't which same with me I mean in the 90s I think because we you know finally after Reagan and Bush here there was a there was a democratic candidate. And so Mm. there was a narrative for middle-class white people, especially, I think that there was a Democrat in the, in the white house. And so like, we were all okay. Everything was okay now. And then to, to just be so more and more aware of the damage done during the Clinton years is, um, and, and actually the very continuation of so many Reagan, Reagan, Reagan ish (laughs) politics. Yeah. It's been a real eye opener. I know what you mean. It's really funny because in the UK we have we had such a kind of parallel experience with like you know we had a Labour leader our version of uh, Democrats but who did the same carrying on the same work of Margaret Thatcher who was like the equivalent mm. of, of Reagan's you know you know and that seems to have uh, gone on and then also there's so many other things in the 90s as well because I think we're the se- roughly the same kind of age um, so whilst I was really getting into like all this amazingly colourful music in the 90s. There right. was this whole celebration of misogyny um, and right. that culture, you know, whether it was like, I know the Beastie Boys became incredibly politically correct, mm. but they weren't initially. Right. You but know. they weren't. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right. Yeah, but they weren't. Right. And, and that, um, yeah, and, and so many ways of, um, of re-seeing things. I mean, I think, you know, to be a woman and, and to understand my my internalized misogyny, I mean, I I wish that I wasn't seeing so much new stuff in this book I'm reading. Mm. <laughs> and I've considered myself a feminist for a very long time, and grew up with a mother who who um, instilled those values in me. And yet, and yet, you know, just to see the the internalized misogyny it, um, as a a continual waking up, you know, as I'm seeing as a white person, a continue, a, a need to continually wake up out of a trance and, yeah. and that, um, and how terrifying that is really, because I, I mean, there's this, there are these weird ways that I feel, I'm not going to say, uh, a, 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 at all a kinship or agreeing with, but I see how, the need to go the, the a feeling of the need to go back like we had it was good before let's just go back mm. um i feel i guess i i should say i feel how compelling that is um and and that what we're when we look forward there's this big mystery there and so to to say to people okay you're going to feel really uncomfortable and all notion of your place in society and your power, where your power is derived from and where your safety is derived from 
Um, we're going to change all of those, but don't worry. We're headed towards a better place. <laughs> um, especially when the better place doesn't look so better right now. It looks really terrifying. Um, and wouldn't it, how compelling it is to just think of, um, well, I would just, let me just drive my car and put on the air conditioning and play my, my nineties hits <laughs> and, and just can't we all just go back to where we were. I, I understand that. And yet I also, you know, as soon as I say that, I, I think about like, well, for me as a woman, would I want to do it? What do I want to go backwards at all? Hell no. Mm-hmm. And, um, to understand, um, try to understand the perspectives of, of people of color, of trans people, um, people, you know, who have not ever felt safe, um, to say like, there is, you know, there is no other way, but moving forward from where we are. So, so let's start learning how to deal. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what I feel like my next thing is, 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 uh, you know, trying, especially for white people, because I think there are so many, our audience are so audiences are so vastly white. Um, how, you know, how do we use music as a way to, um, entice white people to continue transforming ourselves because it is, it is we who need to transform ourselves in order to, to live in a, a, a place of, justice and liberation for all people. This is something that you've um, you've been taking active steps with for a number of years now, isn't it? Can you tell me about how how this, um, how you're, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's too bold for, for someone to call themselves an ally. How did your sort of, I don't know, a kind of interest and commitment to um, allyship begin? Right. Uh, well, I'll use co-conspirator instead of ally, and and that that is simply because you know when even when I say ally, that there's an implication there that I'm in a dominant group, and my I'm lending my friendship to someone else's cause, um, and for me that's been a, a big reframing is mm. how to see this as my work and my liberation as well, and of course that's at the, you know, there's a risk in there of, you know, making center my oppression again, (laughs) or the ways that I suffer as a white person again. But I, but I'm learning that if, you know, if, if, if this is not a personal, um, this isn't about my personal survival, then my motivation for staying in this work is not strong enough for what this work asks of me. Um, so that was, you know, I think that was a big, you know, f- from the beginning of Tune Yards, t- speaking of the musical part. So Tune Yards started with the song Hatari mm. on the first Tune Yards album, which was um, Hatari is Swahili for danger. And um, I, I, it's interesting, Nate and I were just uh, watching the under under African Skies documentary. Have you seen it? The I Paul haven't. Simon. No, I, I it, right. So it's a Paul Simon documentary. Yeah, right. it's a it's basically the mm. you know uh, on the anniversary the twenty fifth anniversary I guess of um, of Graceland coming out. Yeah, that they did a re release of the record, but also this documentary came out, um, and it brings up. I mean, it's basically. <laughs> 
it's basically like the origin story of so many indie bands and um, white indie bands, right? So, so to watch this and then consider, so, so Graceland came out in 1986. I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think around that same time, my aunt and, and uncle, who are both in medicine, they were living in Kenya. I have to check that year, but it was somewhere around that year. And so I had these two, I had this very um, visceral reaction to Graceland where I just, as a, you know, as a kid could listen to it over and over and over again. Mm. And those songs are so deeply rooted in me. And then I had this experience of sending cassette tapes back and forth. Um, I don't know if they sent any, actually. We sent cassette tapes <laughs> to my aunt and uncle. Um, and, and just letters and, you know, trying to understand um, what, what their experience was in this place called Kenya mm-hmm. and on this continent called Africa. And um, I, did an, I did a project in, you know, whatever it was, first grade on, on a report on Kenya. And I had, you know, I just had done all this research. And from that, from those moments on, and also with an obsession with Michael Jackson, I had you know, my musical obsessions, at least, were all black music, or I should say, African and African diasporic music. Mm. (laughs) And I should clarify, not all, you know, I I also had plenty of um, classical music, white classical music from my mom. Although, although, is Beethoven black? I just read that. (laughs) Yes, that that, that is a thing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, this is all to say that um, we're watching this documentary and just, you know, the... um, Trying to to um, Toon Yards has always been attempting to reckon with being a white musician. Intent, in, in I wouldn't even say influence. That that my musical DNA is mm. African music to such a great extent, and and the music that I felt compelled to finally bring out into the world after years of feeling a. a so much shame that I would never have let that music into, into the world. Um, that finally I felt like I, with this song and then with that, with that bird brains album in particular, um, that I had found a way of understanding how that music moved through me as a white person and as a white woman. And, um, and that I had found these specific production techniques and ways of making this, um, uh, something of my own creation that felt authentically me and with all the complications of what it means to be a white woman making music influenced very heavily by Jamaican music, dance hall, reggae, um, by, you know, singing this song about essentially about my experience as a white woman traveling in Kenya and Tanzania and, um, trying through music to explore who I am as a musician and, and what the implications are then. So this is a really long way of your original to get back to the original question. This is, it's been at the core of what tune yards has been the whole time, whether or not people wanted to, you know, see that, you know, Mm. in reviews or, or enlisting themselves. And, um, and of course the music apparently found, resonance with with people's experience regardless of what you know whether they were interested in in exploring those things too um i was really interested by what you were saying though um 
particularly at the beginning of tune yards was there a process of confidence that you had to go through in order to kind of feel that you had the 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 rights or the you know you you had it to to perform the music the way you were and to to let the the african influence and uh diaspora come through in your sound no i mean <laughs> i mean it still it still feels you know one one day i can feel really as uncomfortable as it did the first day. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we had just watched that documentary last night and then I was thinking of our conversation today and, um, you know, there, there are these really inst- uh, instructive and, and terrifying particular moments that I remember about performances, like performing in, in Brooklyn uh, at that free I think it's Celebrate Brooklyn, a free, mm. free outdoor concert. And we had Shabazz Palaces open for us, yeah. one of my favorite groups from the past decade. And uh, it was a really magical night and magical experience. But And, and I remember that um, hearing a criticism online somewhere that I had sung these words uh, in that song, Left Behind, of ours, where I'm, uh, I say... This place has really changed its ways. Um, there's just this, the, you know, I'm, I'm speaking these words and this, this person online was like, you know, what? <laughs> Why is this white woman on the stage singing this? And, and the, the implication was also that the music itself was appropriative. And that mm. song is very, very based on dance hall and, um, and my, you know, my vocal uh lines are are of course inevitably influenced by the black singers that I have uh, listened mm. to Barrington Levy comes to mind you know so so there's um and I have to take that in mm. deeply and at first it comes with shame and sh- shutting down and then it might come to um wanting to seek you know some kind of affirmation and say you know someone tell me that what i'm doing is okay it's a song about gentrification so isn't that a good thing yeah <laughs> um but then but then hopefully just allowing there to be a complicated conversation here about what what music i do want to be making and and being okay with the discomfort that it's never going to feel i'm never going to feel um you know approve total approval i'm a good person and i'm doing good things i think that we're we are past that in as white people that we don't, we don't get that we're, we're all racist because we're growing up in racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that's not to say that we need to act out of that all the time and can't heal and transform. However, um, it's not about being right or wrong. Is it right? Right. And then how, and so the question is as a musician, how do I wake up every day and Mm -hmm. go make music? And some days I would go sing and be like, I am so, I can't, I can't. (laughs) Instead, I'm going to lie sobbing on the studio floor today. Mm. And that's as much as I can do. And then other days to um, allow myself that I'm part of this system. And I, and I'm also, I I also didn't choose to be in the system this way. And that, um, you know, I heard, I heard you say in the episode of, of this podcast that I, you know, that um, I believe I heard you say you're feeling that music can be part of 
some kind of healing. I forget how you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but that music, yes, is, um, does transcend these, um, these categories that we have <laughs> put on each other as human beings in, in the society. Mm-hmm. Um, but where's that, you know, where's that tricky line? I'm still, I'm still a white person with, with, um, I, I don't even want to call it privilege. I want to say I'm a white person in a, in positioned in a place where I am, um, necessarily very, um, schooled to be blind to the impacts of my behavior and of my words. I mean, I, I do feel, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying now, because um, I'm, of course, like um, hearing some of your music in my head as, as you're saying these words, and it's sort of changing my perception a little bit in a way. Like I, I'm feeling more of a sort of sense of just my own personal take on it is I'm feeling like I've always felt listening to Juneyard that there's this sort of sense of catharsis going on um anyway like the the way the vocals and the rhythms kind of go together um mm. does feel like it, it it feels like someone's thought patterns um a lot more than certain other music you know where i i kind of feel like you're kind of expressing yourself um in a way where it's kind of all coming out no matter how structured or how long you spent doing it <laughs> um it's like you know it's coming out like the rhythm of how someone's brain thinks uh, a lot more than say sometimes where someone's going, yeah, but we got like we're going at 118 BPM here, and yep, yep, yep. I've I've, I've sequenced like the baseline coming in here, you know, right. not to just diminish <laughs> that, but it right. does feel that that there is some. It's like a surge of awkward energy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Aw- I love it. A surge of awkward energy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how and how do you go like you know I'm like. Oh, I feel disgusted, you know, like how, Mm. how can that, I I think that's a, that's something that I've found really, really challenging about, especially being in a genre of pop music, maybe, because if you're in the genre of like noise and kind of avant-garde experimental, you get you know, you, people are there not to feel good or comfortable. And mm. they're like, oh, this person is, you know, they might be shredding this, this just earth shattering ear blowing, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, shreddy noise. And it, and, and, the, and people are nodding and kind of like, yeah, you know, or completely still there's an, there's an allowance to feel bad when you listen to music, when you listen to pop music, you don't want to feel bad. You want to, you want to dance. <laughs> I mean, you, you like, in other words, I mean, maybe you do want to feel bad, but, but it's in a kind of like romantic sadness. It's in some kind of, um, you know, I don't, I don't think people go to pop music to question themselves and feel unsettled. Let's say. No, they they can kind of deal with a certain, it's a certain amount of like, I mean, I know that I, you know, I will love with like, I can think of like bittersweet pop, you know, the kind of, you know the 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 minor key sort of sad mm-hmm. uh that's about as right. far as you go into it isn't it um right. in pop is the sort of the heartbreak right. i guess right exactly which is such a um which is feels now so safe <laughs> oh my trope. god yes right. it, it feels like 1950s it feels kind of like um very sort of like uh like someone's being jilted at a prom right <laughs> 
The biggest right, love totally. song in the world feels like someone's been jilted a, a prom. Right. Now, if you said to me, actually, that Taylor Swift song is about coming to terms with her whiteness, and it was a sad, you know, and like it was framed mm. as a sad song, and you couldn't at first glance really tell the difference. And then in interviews, she started, started talking like that. I don't know. That could blow some minds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that we're not, you know, that that in our times of self-reflection that we're not, especially I think as women, that you know, that there's that there's because uh, um, I think I'm trying to think while I talk, but for men I think there's still there's this trope of men's existential exploration in the world. So like, what does it all mean? Kind of thing. Um, and I, I think for women, there's still, there's, it, there's still a challenge to say, I have an inner life that is not always centered around the idea of a man. Mm. So that there are so many, um, there's so many songs about this kind of longing. Um, but to consider that those, that those longings from a woman are about um, her sense of uh, place in society or sense of her own um, internalized racism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you just don't assume that that's what a song, a sad song is about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that's something that I've, that I've just been trying. I've been trying to let myself, especially, you know, I think it's these days, because gender feels so rightly complicated that um, I tend to steer away from, you know, male, female paradigms. But I do, I do try to, I'm trying to allow myself that a bit more just to, to again, allow myself to awaken from, from the trances that I have been in around um, growing up and being socialized as a woman in this, in this society too. Yeah. I'm, Hold that thought. I'm just going to turn an extra light on because I realise it's Please. going to... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's nighttime it's, your time. There we go. Uh, yeah, we're going to... It's just suddenly we're changing to the diff- a different time day. Yeah, and so this is really interesting because, like, uh, talking about that, uh, I'd like to go back to the 90s and I, I presume... <laughs> I wouldn't... Actually, that's quite ironic. I don't want to go... We've just been talking about that. But, like, if, we, if we're sort of, like, going in an imaginary car to the 90s and sort of to... Uh, um, how did you... Um, how did music come into your life? It's always been there. I mean, my, my parents met playing um, at square, square dances. My dad plays the fiddle. My mom's a, oh, really? a pianist. And, and um, yeah... So, so yeah, there's, there was always music and, and always music in a very, um, a folk, a folk context Mm. uh, and and also a homemade context. So not, not just recorded music. I think my dad was, um, my dad, uh, they're 10 years apart. So my mom really grew up in the fifties and my dad grew up in the sixties, um, ish. And so my dad, my dad was more into pop you know, recorded pop music and, um, but mostly, you know, um, I'd say Dylan and, um, Steely Dan. <laughs> classic. Um, and yeah. Yeah. The classic dad. Yeah. And music. not yeah. dad, classic dad, <laughs> classic dad, but with a, a real, a lot of bluegrass and a mm. lot of, um, kind of coming more from the 
folky side of things, American folk side of things. And they, they also, um, I grew up summers with my mom teaching at, um, a camp called Pinewoods, which where we went to early music week and she played the harpsichord and I, I was, um, steeped in, uh, early music early. Mm. Uh, so, you know, viol ensembles and recorder ensembles and, um, Renaissance dance a bit. Um, so that was, uh, and, and then took piano from my mom at a really young age too, and studied, studied classical music that way. Um, so yeah, always around yeah. <laughs> in many forms. And wh- where, whereabouts was this? Which part of America were you, were you growing up in? All East Coast. I was born in New Jersey, yeah. uh, like so many great musicians. <laughs> 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 um, but, but moved soon after uh, mm-hmm. and lived in... Uh, New York, uh, in the Bronx for a bit and then, uh, moved around the, that area and ended up in Connecticut, which is where I spent most of my growing up. Yeah. So you have this kind of quite, it's quite, um, a deep musical connection with your family. Um, was there a, was there a point where you kind of felt like you found something that was really like something musical that was really different to, um, to what you'd kind of grown up with and the kind of influences of your, your parents? Mm-hmm. Two things. One was uh, when we moved to Connecticut, especially, so that would have been, again, probably 86, maybe 87. Anyway, there was a great radio coming out of New York City and we were close enough so that we were getting, um, I think at that point there was Z100 and... Uh, which was playing, you know, really like really interesting. I mean, I, I constantly reference um, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam and, mm-hmm. um, you know, those, those first Janet Jackson records and just really, really pioneering pop music at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a healthy dose of Michael Jackson, like to the point of putting band-aids on my fingers and, um, learning dances. And, um, so there was that kind of eighties, eighties pop music. And then, and then I think it was Graceland, you know, we were watching that documentary last night and, and seeing the musicians, uh, general Shurinda and the Gaza sisters. I now know them to be who, who did that song. I know what I know. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I still, I was brought to tears last night to actually see the musicians who had done that because in my mind, it was a Paul Simon record. You yeah. know, the, the record said Paul Simon <coughs> and I didn't read closely enough at that, at that age <laughs> to be able to understand how that music was made. And and I don't think I was alone, you know, I might've mm-hmm. been seven or eight years old, but like, I think lots of adult people also <laughs> didn't, didn't really look into how that record had been made. Um, and to see that really Paul Simon was doing a, a kind of karaoke over these songs that had already existed on these um, bands records. Um, but anyway, that's all to say that that record, there were suddenly sounds that I had absolutely never heard. And so it's really South African music that um, was an awakening for me. And that was through the Johnny Clegg tapes that my aunt and uncle brought back from their time in Africa and um, uh, Lady Smith Black Mombazo and, um, you know, the other music that I got into as a result of Graceland. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's 
So it sounds like he sort of like did the documentary. It sounds like the documentary yesterday had quite an effect on kind of like going back and looking at sort of maybe previous ideas as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I do think I do think there's danger in saying music is a universal language. So let's all just keep collaborating and things will be fine. Because that because that felt felt to me like a little bit of the that's a lot of the messaging around how Graceland is interpreted now. Like, okay, yeah, you know, Paul Simon made a lot of mistakes along the way, but, but overall, isn't it worthwhile that we saw black musicians and white musicians, you know, together on stage, embracing one another, that we saw this uh, cross-cultural collaboration and that we saw love being made through music. And, I, I believe that that's always going to happen. I mean, there's, you know, mm. white musicians are are collaborating with musicians who are black, who are, of, you know, Latino, who are of, you know, that's going to keep happening. <laughs> musicians mm. of color and white musicians playing together. A- and yet I think when we miss, when we miss how white supremacy gets played out in, in everything, then we miss this opportunity to, as, as we started by saying uh, the, to transform ourselves as white musicians. So um, anyway, so that these are quest- way more questions than answers. When I think, you know, the problem with talking about music too, is that there's so much that language I'll speak from knowing mostly just English and romance languages that um, of course there's so much that's uns- that's unspeakable or unsayable in language that is said through music. So I'm just thinking of this new yeah. single that we'll have out hopefully by the, um, should have out by the time this airs. This is right. I don't know anything. I just know that there is something coming out on the 22nd. Yeah. This is all I know. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, it's called Nowhere Man. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to say it for the first wow, time. Wow. This is, this is amazing. So this is, um, this is the first time I've heard anything about what this is. Yeah, it's the first time I've said anything. Wow! How does it feel saying these words? Exclusive on (laughs) (laughs) Lost in Sound. Uh, But thinking about, um, so it's called Nowhere, comma, man, Mm. (laughs) to differentiate from the whole song. (laughs) But uh, a lot of our lyrics, my lyrics, are so absurd. Uh, they don't make a linear sense, you know. They're not. Uh, they're not particularly narrative, and so much what's, of what's being said, I think, in this song that we're about to do is in the shredding of sound. <laughs> you know that. Um, that's why I find myself here in this art form. Is that um, you're not just and and ironically, of course, that Paul Simon to- taught me so much about. I remember. Uh, a friend of mine referencing, and the moon rose over an open field, uh, which is from, uh, which song? Simon and Garfunkel song. <sighs> but the, and, and the harmony goes, and the moon rose oh, over an open mm. field. That, that it's this differentiation that, and the music s- sounds like, um, America. It's from the song America. The way that he puts the harmony there is evoking the moon rising. Like, how poetic and gorgeous that is. 
in speaking about this new song of ours, there, there's a way that the music can viscerally communicate a, a state of being that the words will never do. Mm. Um, and that, and that, that's what's so satisfying about being able to play music yeah. um, from, as, as opposed to, you know, if I were just trying to be a poet, for instance, although I imagine that's all, also very pleasurable. <laughs> but there's a way that, um, that not only can the music do that of, 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 you know, getting you viscerally instead of intellectually, but also that it's compelling, like mm. that it compels people to move and that before you know it, you're moving and you don't even know what's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, complexity there there's the lingering question is what made me think about it that we can just allow it to be there without it having an answer which is also why i find political music and and if you want to say protest music um that that notion of it to to be something also that i feel like you know is is in this day and age really being um hashed out of it because there's the kind of protest song of, you know, here's an issue and here's what we need to do about it. Mm. It's an unjust and um, let's all get together and fight this thing. And I mean, at least for me, like, what's the word exploring whiteness, (laughs) it's not going to be like whiteness is bad. Let's, you know, at least for me, whiteness is bad. I'm a white person, but I'm I'm a good kind of white person. And my life is dedicated to this kind of work against, Mm. you know, anti-racist work. And here we are. I don't want to listen to that song. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> this also goes into something that I used to love about, like, say, like David Byrne or something, an artist like that who would deliberately write lyrics that were kind of obtuse or kind of mis- yeah. meaningless to the, the sound of the emotion coming out. Mm-hmm. Right, but then you get struck by... I'm trying to think of a good, <laughs> um, a good David Byrne lyric to reference here, <laughs> but but in other words, like you you know it does it it's meaningless and it came you know it might have come from him playing with lyrics and sounds and which sounds felt right at the time and then suddenly you have, um, give me one I I can only um, think of all I can think of is is just you might find yourself um... exactly yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, but then I but then I realized that the the ones that really strike me, I mean, back to Paul Simon, sometimes when those lyrics are pulled out, like the boy in the bubble and the baby with the baboon heart is something that they pull out, mm. and I just feel like I could just say that. I mean, first of all, it's very pleasurable to say over and over again, <laughs> but. Um, but what it conjures up and the confu- like the more you go into that lyric, whoa, <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, uh, that there's so much to be found there. Um, yeah, I, and I do love that more. And with my own, with our own lyrics too. Sometimes I, I say, "What the hell was I thinking when I came up with that?" Because it, it, um, <laughs> because it meant something to me at the time, right? And at the time it felt appropriate, but I didn't know why maybe. Mm. Um, and then the more and more I say it to myself over and over again, I'm like, whoa. And then there's that in there. So depending on who's listening, they might get this completely different idea or, or question. And of course that's, what's dangerous about, uh, about music and, and compelling about music 
and dangerous in trying to say a one specific thing. This song mm. means this. Mm. Um, and the risk that someone will, you know, someone will take a song of mine and, and say, oh, she is a anti-abortion activist who's a, who's a Christian. Yeah. I, the, I know that there have been people who really, who took, somehow got that from a song of mine. A particular and, song. I, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I actually don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I think I tried to figure it out for a long time and then I just gave up. You know, I'm not anti-Christian. I have a lot of struggle with Christianity, but um, but I it, it allowed me to see some commonalities between people. But when, when I thought, well, what do I need to say? Like, do I need to then be like, well, I'm actually like very pro-choice. <laughs> do I need to make that apparent? And then lately I've been like, yeah, I actually really do. I, and if people stop following me and stop being a fan because of that, fine. But, um, but I think that was, that was part of being um, starting to be a bit more outwardly political because I just thought like there can't, there's certain things that I can't, that I can't be mistaken about in, yeah. in a public place. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? The sort of difference between sort of uh, uh, the kind of um, the things that we need to be very clear about, like particularly mm-hmm. in 2020, in terms of our beliefs, um, and and the, the kind of the magical, ambiguous nature of where the fuck do ideas and sounds and songs come from? You know, you're, it sounds like you, you're describing your creative process. It sounds very like. Um, uh, like like something happens, I think, with a lot of artists, and we're not sure how it happens. Right. 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 Who knows where it came from? Because one of the things I've always noticed about your work, or, like, read about you, is you, you, you deliberately do certain techniques or change certain things about the way you work um, mm. to bring in, like, a new batch of songs or a new stage is, is that is that like a very important part of of the tune yards creative process i think i'm i not that i want to be careful about it but i think of course that was what drew me to studying haitian drumming and dancing was that i really needed and and, and i see i mean again this is why paul simon sorry to make this whole interview about paul simon That's okay. <laughs> but part it's, of seeing yeah. part of exploring <laughs> part of exploring graceland is to go oh did i also do that because mm. it you know of course you're like you're a white musician he's a white musician he's had this um it you know he wants to move out of his stuck places and and i always want to move out of my stuck places so um so you know with with our after we did the Who Kill album, and I felt like I had expended every single musical drop that I had, I realized that what I needed to do was was f- feed myself musically mm. um, in order to have anything to work with. And at that point, I fed myself a lot of Haitian percussion and dance, and I also fed myself and tried to always feed myself new skills. So mm. learning new instruments or new pieces of equipment. I learned how to DJ, you know, before our last album as part of um, getting a gig as a DJ that paid a lot. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm sure going to find out. Um, but then but then also to um, to be able to, you know, act as a DJ in my own music, really, and mm-hmm. to um, to know to kind of, you know, that that 
particular experience of reading an audience and send, sending an audience through a set and um, uh, manipulating them <laughs> mm. in ways to kind of give them a, a wave to ride on through through an evening. I'm a DJ myself and, and oh, yeah. kind of really to describe that kind of feeling of like kind of watching the people in the crowd and little movements that someone might nod their head to kind of is almost like mm-hmm. you, you're kind of syncing up with it and kind of like anticipating how they're doing totally. that and with, with with these sort of devices that you use um does that allow you to write music in a way where you can kind of almost like you've set parameters so it's easier to be natural i don't want to put i don't know i don't maybe i've phrased that in a bad way because i don't want to put like an oh, no, emphasis no. on you yeah. with that you know but. i I, I guess I would describe it more as um, stirring up a pot, <laughs> adding not just adding ingredients and and setting the parameter of I'm making a stew or whatever it is, <laughs> um, but really the motion of let me create enough chaos here um, so that the ingredients start to ing- intermingle and then there's this chaotic movement that happens and then and then I leave it to settle for a while, come back to it, add some seasonings, eat the meal. <laughs> In other words, there's there 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 has to be some kind of um, framework or constraint. I find that really helpful. But there's a lot of improvisation and a lot of, um, you know, I have an I, the idea is that I'm making a song, but today. Today I'm feeling like um, in the mood for uh, a tomato-based dish, <laughs> so I'm going to start with a uh, you know a sample of myself of an old song that I um, if I that that we didn't use, and I'm going to put that on the CDJ, and I'm going to make a loop with it, and that's going to be oh, and that made me think of like oh, it needs, definitely needs garlic, mm. so I'm going to throw some ukulele on that, you know. <laughs> um, no, there you go. There's my creation metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Would you would you say that uh, that the ukuleles are the garlic of the music world? <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, because garlic is so essential in cooking to me, and ukulele is not at all essential <laughs> in music making. <laughs> so maybe that's a bad metaphor. Yeah, ukuleles are more like capers, I think. Dude, there you go. Ukuleles are capers. <laughs> so, to be used only in in very small amounts. Yeah. And a well a well thought out use of capers. And when you get when you get that caper or that ukulele in the right place, it's just that contrast, isn't it, that just makes right. these sort of zings. Right. And you're like, what is, what is that ingredient that I can't quite put my finger on? And then Mm. someone says ukulele and you go, really? Oh, I, I just wouldn't have said that. (laughs) (laughs) That's my hope. Anyway, I like the ukulele not to sound like a ukulele. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Thank yeah, you. thank you. I'm so glad you reached out and that it worked out. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you spoke to me because I, I had a really, really good chat with Nate about five years ago now. And, That's what he and, said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was Meryl Garbus, aka Tune Yards. 
so good to speak with her. It was so much more of an intense conversation than I was imagining it to be. And I think there's going to be things that I take away from it and kind of re-listen to and, and learn. Sorry if it's a bit windy right now. Um, I guess that's maybe the last of the summer disappearing right in front of me. I, I have so much respect for Meryl for being so self-critical and so honest about her own contradictions and her own uncertainties and i think the way of the world at the moment is more than ever we're we're, we're posing questions than actually knowing any answers and and she's so honest about about this about not having the answers but wanting to continually look into her world and what she can do in the world around her and I totally forgot to talk to her about uh, Sorry to Bother You, the soundtrack to the film Sorry to Bother You which she did last year which is a film I fucking love and I really wanted to vibe on that but I totally forgot didn't I yeah nice one Hanford you've been listening to Lost and Sound written and produced by me Paul Hanford Title music by ESO. Thanks to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. And this episode is being hosted by Bear Radio. And you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please hit subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. Take care and speak to you soon.